Ernest Henley, and it reads like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or, nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how changed with punishments the scroll, I and the master of my fate. I and the captain of my soul. This poem by Henley embodies the resilient and individual conquering spirit of our culture today. And many, including Nelson Mandela, as I mentioned, William Churchill during World War II, President Barack Obama even, have quoted that last stanza in attempts to motivate groups of people to rise up and fight or not quit. And we are told in our culture that we are the main character in an epic novel. We are the hero destined for greatness. We are encouraged to be that captain of our fate, the master of our soul. And that would be incredibly motivating if it were not incredibly false. In reality, we are not the captain of our soul, whether we want to believe we are or not. We are not the hero we're actually the one, the ones who equally of all messed everything up and have brought sorrow into our lives and into this world. Saul, as we have seen throughout this study, was dedicated to his legacy. He was going to build an army for himself, and he wanted to leave a story behind where he was the, sto- the hero to the point that he forgot who the author truly is. And it's in his forgetting, or maybe better said, in his ignoring of the true author that led to his death and destruction. As mentioned last week, the last couple chapters serve as a hinge in the story of First and Second Samuel, as it was originally one book. But it doesn't only serve as a hinge in First and Second Samuel, it serves as a hinge in the entire redemptive narrative of the Bible. So for those of you of us who haven't been here, or for memory's sake, let's discuss what's going on in this local context in 1 Samuel 30 and 31. Last week, Tim preached from chapter 30, showing how David, this time, sought the Lord after the Amalekites had come in and taken his and his army's wives and destroyed their city. David, after seeking the Lord through the priest, is told to pursue this band of Amalekites with a smaller army. And he rescues his family and his army's family. Also keep in mind, while all of this is going on simultaneously, excuse me, let me back up. Before David returned home, the Lord providentially intervened and kept him from fighting his own people, the Israelites, on the side of the Philistines, which would have been a severe sin. Lastly, or simultaneously, I should say, to David's victory, Saul, here in chapter 31, is at battle with the Philistines. And you're likely aware, if you've been with us, Saul is going to die. He and his sons will be killed in the battle. And I say, as you're likely aware, not meaning that you've read ahead, but instead, we know that from previous sermons and chapters over the last several months, 
it has been promised by God that neither Saul nor his line would continue to reign king over Israel, but instead David will. See, this is what God has promised. And because God has decreed this would happen, God has decreed Saul's destruction. Saul will, in fact, see destruction for himself and for his family line. See, Saul was a master of false repentance. And false repentance and a lack of faith will lead to destruction. God has said that. As we conclude 1 Samuel, we can see that Saul was a man of sorrows and faced destruction. But we have to remember, David too was a man of sorrows, was full of sin. But he did not face destruction because he put his faith in the coming Messiah who would be the man of sorrows, who faced destruction for him. See, today we're going to see Saul die and his house destroyed. You're going to hear the word destroyed a lot. By house, I mean his line. And we're going to see that the, what those implications are for the local context of this passage, the biblical and redemptive context, and also our personal context today. We'll uncover how Saul's death practically led, led to David becoming king over Israel, and how Saul's destruction made way for David's line, and how David's line actually paves the way for the coming king of kings. So if you would, please pray with me. And then after we pray, I'll ask you to stand and we'll read the first half of this chapter. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for speaking to us so that our hearts can be encouraged, so that we can know how to walk in true obedience, so that we can know that for us in Christ, we are secure, not just for today, but for eternity. Lord, as your word is preached, I ask that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would cause us to have more faith in you, a more contrite spirit. Lord, we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please stand with me. We'll be in 1 Samuel 31. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, and he feared greatly. Therefore, I'm sorry, fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. You may be seated. Saul's death makes way for David. Saul's death had been promised, as I mentioned, uh, multiple times previously. We see it in 1 Samuel 13. The events of 1 Samuel 14 through 15 and 28 all are just further revelations of Saul's impending destruction. 
And that Saul would not just die and die of old age, but he would be slain, destroyed. Before we move to the details of Saul's death, I want to remind us what led to his judgment. Although Saul, in many ways, played the part of one of God's people and the king of Israel, he did not truly submit to God. And we know this because Saul did not truly repent. Heath Thomas points out a few specific signs of false repentance that we can learn from Saul. One, false repentance often manifests itself in rationalization or blame shifting. The last time I was up here preaching was actually 14 and 15, and that's when we see Saul not destroy the Amalekites like he was supposed to, and he just starts blaming the people, and then he blames the spoiled Amalekites, and on and on, he's just shifting the blame. Secondly, false repentance manifests in unchanged behavior. Saul never actually changed his behavior. He was consistently a paranoid, neurotic king who did not trust God. He was constantly chasing David. You know, in one section early on in Samuel, we have the famous story where he doesn't kill David, or David doesn't kill Saul, and Saul's weeping, and just so, thank you, David, for not killing me, praise the Lord, all this stuff. Two chapters later, we have the exact same scene, and that's only two recordings. There's no reason not to think, like, there's years of Saul chasing David. Third, false repentance produces the wrong kind of sorrow. Saul's sorrow was always tied to how people perceived his leadership. Again, referencing chapter 14, Saul repents to Samuel so that Samuel, and he says this explicitly, I've repented, please come with me to make sacrifice. That side of making sacrifice is in hopes that the people will see, oh, Samuel, the one who's talking to God, like Saul. That's good for Saul. That's what his motivation was consistently. And the last two very closely tied together, false repentance sometimes manifests in conditional obedience, and false repentance manifests in partial obedience. Heath Thomas says it this way at the end, repentance results in obedience, not conditional obedience, not partial obedience. Anything less than this is simply offensive. See, Saul's death and destruction explicitly stem from the fact that he, was ne- he never truly repented. I don't want you thinking, I'm not as bad as Saul. That's not the issue here. We're not measuring up how bad Saul's sins were compared to our sins and hoping like we've done just not quite enough bad, so we're not really destined for destruction. But the, all Saul had to do was repent and turn to the Lord, plead the Lord's forgiveness, and he would be forgiven. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later. This is the same promise for us today. We, when we think of God's promises and we talk about God's promises, we often strictly think in the context of his promises that benefit us. We think, and, and they are good promises, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he loves us, and he promised that he would make a way for salvation in the Old Testament, and that he's coming again. Those are all really good, but those aren't his only promises in the Bible. We should remember these promises and we should rejoice in them, but here in this passage, we see the fulfillment of another promise. We see the fulfillment that those who do not repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ will see destruction. That's a grave promise that we should heed just as much as the other promises of God. See, in this account of Saul's death, we read, just read in 1 Samuel 31, 1 through 7, the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. They killed him, right? 
there's, it says that he fell upon his sword. The army fell. There's a lot of talk about fell, falling. And this is actually a bit of a literary homage to, if you remember way back to the story of Eli and Samuel, there's some parallels between their deaths, and that's not an accident. Well, this is a recounting of the history. This isn't written haphazardly as events happen. It's written as a collective. And both of these leaders fall because both of these were ungodly leaders appearing to be good at times. Both were concerned with worldly pleasure. Saul, his glory and his fame. Eli, I'm not trying to be crass here. He was fat. He loved food. Like he ate the, the sacrifices, and it was, he profaned the, the tabernacle. Both led Israel into trouble, and both were removed for someone better. As we read these parallels, we can see that the same way the authors of epics, like the Iliad, and weave symbolism and foreshadowing into their story, except this story isn't concocted fiction, it leaves, though, the imprint of a sovereign ruler who is orchestrating his plan, A, his first plan, since the beginning of time, so that God would redeem his people for his glory. Nothing happens outside our God's knowledge. Nothing surprises him. Your sin does not surprise God. He's not surprised by your suffering. He is not surprised by your success. Jesus, tell, uh, in speaking to the crowd in Matthew 6, 25-27, tells them, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor gather into barns, and yet your fa- heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? God, providing for the birds, God, providing for us, involved in us. He is not a distant grandfather God, as Christian referenced earlier. He is an involved God. Friend, Saul was constantly fearful and paranoid, and he let his kingdom and position be his God. You are not the master of your fate. Saul was not the master of his soul. If you are here this morning trying to hold on to control of your life, trying to make yourself worthy of the gospel, white-knuckled, working hard, can I invite you to seek the Lord as David does previously and not be like Saul? Find peace in the Prince of Peace. See, God has promised that Saul would be removed from his throne and that he would place David there. I'm assuming we all get the gist of, the, of royalty. It's not a democracy. But for those of you who don't, maybe, because it's 2022, we haven't had a king in, I don't know, 200 and something years. Um, they can't just say, hey, we don't like the tribe of Benjamin anymore, where Saul was from. Let's do something different. The tribe of Benjamin had to be removed from throne. They had to be defeated. And so then David could step in. You see, David knew he did not have to kill Saul, as we saw several weeks ago. He knew there was a promise that he would be the king 
of Israel, and then that would come to fruition. So David, in faith, doesn't kill Saul. It would have been really easy for someone on the outside to look at that event and be like, dude, just kill Saul already. But instead, he waits, believes in faith that God has said something is going to happen, and when God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. And so David acts in faith there, and so David obeys the Lord, does not sin by not killing the Lord's anointed. And see, what's so interesting, and we don't want to read too much into this, but who is um, Saul's first armor bearer? David. So in this scene, you have another armor bearer following in the steps of David, refusing to kill the Lord's anointed because the armor bearer, Saul's armor bearer, even feared God more than Saul. And so he doesn't kill Saul because Saul was not to be killed by an Israelite, but was to be destroyed. Do you sometimes feel like you need to fulfill the promises of God? This is a trend we see in Scripture, strangely enough. We see Abraham, the first chosen of God, feel the need to create the seed promise by taking Hagar and not promising that God said Sarah would bear the child. We see Jacob and his mother concoct a lie to receive the blessing here when he was promised to receive. So he lies. He concocts a lie to deceive the blessing. Here, God promised that David would be king and God provides a way for David to be king and he does so by destroying Saul. We are a meritocracy. We are a people in many ways. That's a really good thing. Let me be clear. We are a work hard people. That is really good. We are not a work hard to get our salvation people. That is not what we're doing here. You're not coming to church to get salvation. You're not following the commandments to get salvation. You're doing all that to worship God because he has given salvation to us. You see, we believe in the promises of God and we trust that despite our background, despite our sin, despite our wealth status, despite our race, whatever on and on you can go, it is God who saves. It is God who saves because he has said, those who put their faith in me will be saved. Because he has said it, it will be done. So, secondly, Saul's destruction makes way for David's line. Uh, Looking at chapter uh, 31, starting in verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put, on his, armor, put his armor in the temple of, the, of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. See, Saul wasn't, I'm going to reiterate this, Saul wasn't just killed. He was destroyed. As we look at the events after his death, they are packed with significance. I'm just going to blast them off real quick. Saul's body is left behind. This is not customary in ancient Near East practice. His soldiers actually should have been standing back protecting his body, doing everything they could to get his body away from the battlefield. But it just shows the evisceration 
of this battle. Do you remember that when he was, oh, so secondly, excuse me, they cut off his head and stripped his armor. Again, this isn't an accident that his head gets cut off or just that's what happens. Do you remember? Think back. What did they say about Saul? He was a head above everyone and now he's headless. Saul's body mutilated and he's fastened to the wall. So this, there's actually implication here again. So when a body's fastened to the wall, it's to feed the birds. This is hearkening back to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26 tells us, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and there shall be no one to frighten them away. They don't just mutilate Saul's body, but they also do all this on Mount Gaboa, or the first half of it, I should say. And then they send their, his armor to the house of their idols. See, mountains in ancient Near Eastern practice are a sign, excuse me, in ancient Near Eastern culture, mountains are symbols of religious activity. For all of this to be done there, they're sacrificing Saul's body, the previous Lord's anointed, to their false gods. Finally, Saul is buried under the tamarisk tree, which if you recall in chapter 22 and 8, Saul was believing and complaining that everyone was conspiring with David against him. Peter Lyhart points out that this place where Saul exercised his paranoid, self-destructive rule was the place where his body was buried. He ruled with a spear in hand, and he died with the sword. There is, I will say, a glimmer of respect, but it's only for contrast. When valiant men from Jabesh Gilead rescued his body, them being from Jabesh Gilead calls back to Saul's earlier glory. They were the first people that Saul set free in chapter 11. See, Saul was put in a position to honor the Lord but he disobeyed him and he faced destruction for that. See, and it's not just Saul. It wasn't just enough for Saul to die and be destroyed. His family was now destined for destruction as well. And his sin put a curse on the people of Israel. In verses two and three, we see his sons die, including Jonathan, David's best friend. This isn't just showing that Israel was beat very badly, but it's also a fulfillment of God's promise of judgment that Samuel promised in chapter 13, verse 13, saying, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment, command of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The destruction continues beyond Saul and his sons to the people of Israel. In verse seven, we see that the people run. His son, Saul is slain, his sons are slain. And the people of men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his two sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived there. If you're reading your Bible well, you should be understand, asking the question, what the heck is up with this idea about land? Why does Israel care so much about the land? Many have wrongfully applied this promised land to include this idea of manifest destiny, and many have also wrongfully accused the church and the Bible of promoting manifest destiny when it does not. 
the promise of land is greater than just what is today modern Israel and is greater than this world, the entire planet we live on today. The promised land was to replace their wandering in the desert. This land would be a land of prosperity. Israel was commanded to go and, t- and take the land. And so for them to lose the land wasn't God coming, going back on his promise, but was God executing discipline on the people of Israel. See, the promised land ultimately is a promise of a greater land coming. The Bible refers to us as aliens or as foreigners and exiles in this world. If you look at 1 Peter 2.11, and as foreigners, we are awaiting a greater land. That land in the New Testament is explained, and even in the prophets, as the new heavens and the new earth. So for God to allow the Philistines to take over the land, he promised, again, is him showing discipline. He was showing them the significance of their sin is not just personal, but it's communal. Our sin affects other people. So what does this destruction of Saul show us in 2022? It shows us the same thing it's shown us throughout history. Let's not reinvent the wheel here. God is a just God who does what he says he is going to do. He will show mercy to who he will show mercy, and he will pass judgment and harden the heart and condemn the wicked. The controversial passage of Romans 9 shows us this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, when he, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Our God is just and good. I understand that this is a hard pill for us to swallow in our 21st century postmodern love everyone mind. It doesn't fit well. But as the sovereign avenger, the destruction that we are due is to come from his hand as well as his great mercy comes in the form of not only delaying his hand from destroying us, but from absorbing that destruction in himself through Jesus Christ. This wrath, though, that he see, that we see he is faithful to carry out here in Saul. I say all of this to scare you. I didn't say that wrong. I'll, let me say it this way. I'm not going to say I'm not trying to scare you. In some ways, I am for the non-believer or the church attender but someone who might not truly have given their life to Christ, someone who has truly not repented. You might go to church, do some service projects, maybe even talk about God, but do you know God? The Bible actually doesn't tell us to remove fear altogether in our lives. We would call someone foolish or more modern, an idiot, if they walked out the door and just laid down in US-1 right now. We should have a certain fear of laying down on a busy highway 
we should have a certain fear of texting and driving, a certain fear of whatever the case may be. One time when I was working at a plant in South Carolina, I uh, was delivering some products in the back, and they had these like presses, and the press came down, and this is apparently normal, I didn't know that, and it made a loud bang, and then uh, steam shot out. I caught steam, it was just air, it didn't burn me, but it, when I say it scared me, Glasses fell off my face. I jumped up in the air and I was sprinting because I thought the plant was exploding and I didn't care about anyone there, <laughs> apparently. But in all seriousness, it, it scared me half to death. And then a couple of people there were laughing at me, whatever, but it was normal. I was talking to like a pastor friend afterwards about it and he was like, yeah, that's the fear of God just running through your body. Like you're terrified. Like you realize the dangers in this world. Like we, we have a certain element of fear that's, that's good for us. It's good for our well-being or self-preservation. There's a better self-preservation we should have in the sense that we fear God. See, um, jumping to Matthew 10, 26 to 28. So have no fear of, um, let me, we'll read the passage first. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul, and body. In your Bibles, if you have an ESV, this likely reads, have no fear. Those are not inspired, FYI, um, and I'm just going to disagree with the ESV publishers here. It should not say have no fear, but should say have the right fear. Saul did not fear the Lord. The Lord, Saul did not care what God had said. He chose to take God's word as suggestions or even ideas that he could build upon to fit his own liking. And so I want to ask you today, how do you approach the word of God? How do you approach hearing the word of God proclaimed to you when you hear something in the word of God that you don't agree with? Is it, let me see how I can twist that a little bit to work out for my benefit? Let me see how I can twist that to make me a little bit more comfortable? Or is it, okay, I'm wrong. How do I submit to God? How do I follow God? How do I honor God in obedience? Lastly, what I wanted to point out is that David being placed as king, his li- David's line leads to the king of the king Israel truly needs. I mentioned earlier that the removal of Saul provided the path for David to become king of Israel. He was the Lord's anointed, and he would be king of Israel. But again, this is not some random move by God where God's saying, ah, I made a mistake with Saul there. Let me fix this real quick. As you read your Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, we see a perfectly strung together overarching story of redemption. God is bringing his people back to him. God is rescuing his people from being ruled by sin and death to be ruled by the true king, Jesus Christ. But how will he do that? How will he do that? We're not going to do that. How will God do that? See, in the book of Genesis, the Lord actually prophesied about this through a blessing Jacob gave to his son Judah, saying that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. David comes from the tribe of Judah, as opposed to the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Judah was prophesied to be the line of the kings. 
but each one of these earthly kings would fail. Still, David, although called a man of God, fails and dies. David's son, Solomon, will in many ways be considered a good and godly king, and he's a really complicated character, but he will die as well. Others will be good, a couple others. When I say others, that's a very small amount, but others will be good and will still die. Most will be wicked, and they will die. We read, however, in Luke 3, 23 through 34, a list of names. This is called the genealogy of Jesus. Let's be honest, most of us, if we're honest, skip this or skim it. Don't skip and skim it. This is really important stuff. Um, In this, verse 31, we see David listed. And in verse 33, we see Judah listed. We see a plan that God has put in place that the line of Judah, who he has promised to be kings, would go from one to another to another to another to another to another to another until a little baby is born in Bethlehem. As promised. Every prophecy perfectly fulfilled. I've said it like 10 times. I'm going to say it again. What God has promised he will do, he will do. God's plan for Jesus to come to earth, live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, rise again, and ascend to the Father and come again was in no way plan B. This was plan A from the beginning. It was, the, it was God's plan to appoint the Savior to be royalty. Not royalty because people just around him decided to be royalty, but born royalty. David's ascension to the throne sets the grand stage for the king of kings to enter the world. Tim and Christian have often referred to a third king in the story, being Jesus and being the better king. And I want us to understand, this isn't just some cliche that we say, some sort of Jesus juke. This is the plan. This is the plan unfolding for us, and this should bolden our faith. We talk and we sing all the time about Jesus coming again, but do you really believe that he's coming again? He said everything else he was going to do when he did it. He's going to do that too. It's not chance that God appointed Saul. God didn't make a bad choice. God gave his people what they wanted, and he did exactly what God said he would do. He ruined their country. He made, took them to be their army. And a man who, though fallen, being David, would be a type. The better Saul, the better king of Israel, he's a type, meaning he's a shadow of Christ to come, that David will deliver God's people from the Philistines like they have never seen before. This will be more conquering by Israel than ever. David will also pave the way for the temple to be built. See, Jesus is going to come in the future. He's going to set his people free like we have never understood. We're free from sin and death, y'all. He's not going to build the temple, he's going to actually tear the veil in two, and God's presence, which the temple or tabernacle represented, would be amongst his people. Jesus, the better David. So, as we conclude, I want to ask you today, which kingdom are you serving? And if that's too medieval for you to think about, I want to frame it like this. What brings you the most happiness in your life? See, John Owen said this, Christian paraphrased this the other day at community group, and I thought it was perfect for today. It is stupid to suppose that we will ever find our highest happiness in Christ's presence 
if we do not spend as much time as possible with him now. And the only way we can be with Christ now is by thinking of him by faith and love. How can we call ourselves Christians if we spend our days hardly ever thinking about Christ? What are you thinking about? Do you think about Christ? Or is Christ just something you consider on Sundays? We're glad you're here. If that's where you are today, welcome. Be here. If you've got questions, be here. But I want to challenge you, if that is you in this room, you might have been going to church your whole life. You might have been coming to Trinity your whole life. And you might say, I don't actually know God. I do God-like things. You might feel like you compare more to Saul than you do to David. You might not repent. And if that's you, God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And please hear me today. If you do not repent of your sins, like Saul, you will see destruction. There's no way around that. In the same way, there's the other promise that all we do to earn salvation is repent and put our faith in Christ, the one who has done the work for us. See, Jesus and the, the word, uh, band can join me here. Jesus gives a severe warning specifically to the church kid or the churchgoer who does not know God in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I w- will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you know God? For the believer in the room who's like, I know God, how do you respond to this? Respond in worship. Sing. Talk about it in your families. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it in work. Don't let it just be something that sits on the back table. Make Christ the center of your life. For the non-believer in the room, or the one who would just kind of call themselves a Christian, but you actually, you don't fit a lot of what we talk about, I want to invite you to talk to us. If you've got questions about repentance, talk to us. We're going to point you to Scripture and point you to the Lord, ultimately. And we want to invite you to repent. I say this to you not just to beat you down so that you can pull yourself up and make yourself a better convert, but the opposite. David actually gives us some instruction after he sins greatly in the future out of Psalm 51. He says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. As we conclude the life of Saul in his comparison to David, we see that Saul was a man of sorrows who faced destruction, and David too a man of sorrows, but does not face destruction because he believes in the coming Messiah who faces destruction on our behalf. If you would please stand with me as we sing.